What seems like a lifetime ago, we were in a sermon series called Heaven on Earth about life in the church. And we're working through the book of 1 Corinthians. And the big idea was that the Apostle Paul, years ago, had planted this church in a city called Corinth. And Corinth, Corinth was a young blood, fresh money kind of city. What had happened was that when the Roman Empire... I like history, so sorry, but when the Roman Empire was uh, conquering the world and they went into Greece, the city of Corinth was the location of one of the last stands against the spread of the Roman Empire. And so what Rome did to kind of prove their point that you don't mess with Rome was that they completely destroyed the entire city. Like, gone. Because Rome thought... When you threaten a nation that you're going to destroy them if they keep doing what they're doing, you need to have a history of having done that so that they take you seriously. So Rome liked to point to Corinth and Carthage as the two places that used to be cities. And just so you know, if you keep messing around with us, you're going to disappear. And they did the same thing to Jerusalem in the year 70 AD as Jesus predicted what happened if Jerusalem rejected his messiahship. He said that every stone on this temple is going to be torn down. And so um, they did crucify Jesus. They did rebel against Rome. And Rome did destroy Jerusalem as well. But it's been rebuilt. Anyhow, when Corinth was refounded years later, um, it it became a trade city. And it was a young city with lots of fresh money. And not unlike places like Hollywood and L.A. and maybe Vancouver a little bit, when you have a new city with lots of money, they go a little bit crazy. And they have kind of a anybody-can-do-anything attitude because we're rich and young and we're making up the rules as we go. But Jesus loved this city and he built a church in this city. And the problem was that um, they, they believed in Jesus, but they also lived like they didn't. And so Paul wrote this long letter to this church that was doing all these crazy things, trying to point them back to following Christ in a dozen different ways, as they wanted to kind of be Christians and Corinthians at the same time. And Paul was saying to them, actually, if you're going to follow Christ, being a Corinthian needs to die. Jesus is life. Everything that's not Jesus is not life. If you're going to follow Christ, everything needs to die. And so we're going to be in chapter 6, and somebody will press a button in a second, bring up the scripture, but this is the background. Um, Some of the Corinthians, they've had some business deals or something, and one of them is suing another person in the church because the, the deal went bad or whatever, and they actually brought the lawsuit to a local pagan judge, and Paul cannot believe this is happening that uh, the children of God would go to a son of Satan to get justice when they have a problem. Paul cannot believe that this is happening. And so this is the situation there, and he's going to correct and rebuke them as a church. And part of the, the, the tone here that it, Paul's a little bit, I think, scandalized is that the Corinthians think that they're the smartest Christians who've ever lived. And they're even like correcting Paul and telling Paul, you don't totally know how to do this whole following Jesus thing. I know that Jesus appeared to you bodily and I know that you've raised people from the dead, but we're Corinthians. 
<laughs> we know how this works. We're really smart. We have the Holy Spirit. We speak in tongues. We can prophesy. We've got this all figured out. So Paul, don't tell us how to live. And yet they have this fight in their midst and they're going to a pagan judge for justice. And Paul kind of says to them, so you guys are so dumb that you need to go to unbelievers to solve your problems. Even though you're trying to tell me you're so smart. This doesn't make sense. But this is the scenario, and I'm going to read the scriptures and then pray, and then I'm going to try to help us understand what's going on here by looking at the life of a woman named Esther Kim, who is a Korean who lived through the Second World War. And if this feels bizarre and strange, it feels bizarre and strange to me too, but I'm going to try to do something difficult here. And you can pray that I pull it off in the next 23 minutes. It's never going to happen. First Corinthians chapter six, verses one through eight. These are the very words of God. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why not lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brothers go to the law, sorry, brothers go to law against brothers and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Holy God, I, I thank you so much for your steadfast love and determination to love sinners. Father, you, you have done the impossible, that you sent your own beloved Son, who is the true word of God, who dwelled with you forever and has always been your Son, to become one of us, to become a man, to live a human life, and with his perfection, to die on a cross for sinners to be raised from the dead so that everyone who believes in his name through faith will be considered right and just in your sight and be saved and be granted eternal life. Father, this is the most impossible thing that could ever happen, and you've already done it. What is more, Lord, you constantly persevere in wrestling with these saved sinners to get us to believe the truth and be who we are, and to glorify you and display Jesus and to save the lost. Father, thank you. Holy Spirit, thank you. And I pray today that you would give me grace to serve your word and to love this church and that you would do a miracle of transformation in us, that we would be like Jesus. And amen. So I could talk about this passage about lawsuits in the church, a bunch of different ways. Somebody's praying this morning. There are about a thousand sermons in every chapter of the Bible. 
And I'm sure someday someone will come to me and say, I want to sue somebody else at Calvary Chapel. And so what are the rules? Because we like the rules. As soon as there's a problem, that's when we want to know the rules. Um, It's always good to be reading your Bible before there's a problem. Because if you start reading scripture once the problem happens, you always got a vested interest in things, right? So you don't know if you're even capable of hearing the truth once you're already upset and looking for the Bible to help back up your case. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? Welcome to human nature. That's an aside. What really strikes me about these passages are two things that Paul says here that I think we could miss that are the things that really are setting him off about the situation. The first thing he says is this, don't you know that we are to judge the entire world? And why wouldn't you want to be the one wronged? Those are the two heaven touching down, heaven coming down to earth sentences in this. Christian, how how could you go to court to get somebody you're going to judge to come and judge you? And why wouldn't you want to be the one defrauded? And there's a part of me that thinks trying to explain this is so impossible for Robert Balfour, 21st century Canadian, that what I want to do is look at the life of a Korean woman who went through the Second World War to try to give a glimpse of what a life can look like when somebody really does believe that as a Christian, they judge the world. And it's better that they get wronged for the glory of God. So we're going to talk about Esther Kim. I pressed a button that doesn't do anything, so if somebody can, thank you. That's good. It needs to be plugged in. You know, in the wireless age, you think you can just touch a piece of plastic and it should do what you want, but when there's a cord... So this is a Google Google map picture of some of the east, what we call the east. Um, Though I think we're east compared to them. I don't know how that works. It's a globe. That's the problem. So there's Japan, and this is Korea here north and south, but in the Second World War area and before, it wasn't split. It was just Korea, and then this is China over here. Did anybody, does anybody come from around here somewhere? somewhere? Okay, good, good. I wanted to get that part of the map in there. Um, and so before the Second World War happened, Japan was industrializing at, a, at an incredible rate. For years, they, were, they had a, a very severe isolationist policy, and it was the law on that series of islands that if you left Japan, you could not come back or they would kill you. They just wanted no interaction with anything outside of Japan. And what happened is some Western countries, it may have been Britain, came and just said, well, we insist that you interact with us at the end of our guns. And they kind of opened up the country forcefully. But how Japan responded to this um, technologically advanced nation coming and kind of forcing the country open is that they wanted to become as technologically advanced as possible. And so they entered into a period of massive industrialization and very quickly became, as far as I understand history, and I may need to get corrected, they became the most industrialized and technologically advanced uh, country in that area. Very, very, very quickly, like faster than anything around here. And as part of this, as part of becoming super powerful and they had a... uh, 
worldview of dominance. They invaded Korea and conquered it, I think, sometime around the 1900s. As far as I understand it, I could be wrong. It may have been sooner, but sometime around the 1900s. So that Japan was ruling over the Korean peninsula there. And as World War II started to heat up, Japan had ambitions to actually invade all of China and rule over all of Asia. And so they were going to use Korea as their landing area then to travel into uh, Manchuria, which was, I think, the northern part there. And then they actually did get fairly far into China, committing atrocities along the way. And World War II was one of the most bloodiest things that ever happened. So that's the history. Now, in Korea was living a woman named, can you advance it one more slide forward? Miss An A Suk is how it looks like it should be pronounced, but I'm sure I'm getting it wrong. This is a picture of her, I think, from the 60s. And she wrote a book called If I Perish, which is her memoirs of the time. And you know, when I read a book, and it's, I've never heard of some before, I want to make sure that they exist. Because sometimes books come out that are claiming to be Christian and they're just a lie. The Boy Who Went to Heaven. Anybody read that book by a guy named Malarkey? It was complete. I know, it's, it's really ironic, but it was completely made up. And the kid that it was about came out later and said, I told the pastor I was just telling him stories, but he wrote the book like it was real. So I checked these things out. So I actually was, it took me a long time to try to Google it. And so I got this picture from a Korean uh, online English language website. And what she was in the news for, though she's long passed away, is that there's some sort of organization in Korea that wanted her to get some kind of patriotism award for standing against the Japanese during World War II. And so they had a picture of her, as well as this picture is of a bunch of Christians who were in prison during the Second World War for being Christians during Second World War, and not bowing down to the Japanese government. Can you go back to the last slide for a bit, please? So what was going on is as Japan was wanting to increasingly use Korea for their travel through an invasion, they had a more and more oppressive Japanization policy in that area. So they outlawed um, non-Japanese names, so everyone had to have a Japanese name, um, and they outlawed non-Japanese worship, so they put a Japanese idol in all of the churches that were in Korea. There were about 400,000 believers in Korea during this time, about 3,000 churches. And they had a policy that on the first day of every month, they would march everybody, including the Christians, into one of these churches or temples, and everyone had to bow down to one of these Japanese idols with the police or soldiers watching. That picture I showed you, Anne Asuk, she took a different name when she started traveling around America named Esther Kim, which is kind of easier for me to say, so that's the name I'm going to use, but this is the same person. So Esther Kim um, is Korean, was Korean, her mother was Korean, her dad was either Korean and sympathetic to Japanese, the Japanese or Japanese, it was an arranged marriage. And she went to Japan for a while to, to get training, to get her schooling, and then she came back to Korea, and she was a teacher in a Christian school, I think it was. And so one of these days when it was her turn to have participate in the entire mob being taken to a place to bow down to an idol, um, she decided that she couldn't do it. 
And so when everybody was there and the police were saying, now is the time to bow down, not unlike a Daniel, she was the one person who just stood there. And everyone noticed. And then they marched back to the school, and the whole time she's thinking, I'm dead, I'm dead, I'm dead, I'm dead, because everybody had heard the stories of the kinds of tortures you went through when you didn't comply with these things. Well, she was momentarily arrested, and when she was in the police chief's office, he got a phone call and then grabbed a piece of paper off the wall and walked out of the room, and she thought that this was God's rescue for her, so she ran out of the building, went home, got some money, hopped on a train, and then um, was on the lam for a while, eventually ending up in a mud hut with her mom in hiding in the middle of nowhere. And interestingly, during this time, other Christians who were in hiding, living in the woods, living in caves, started showing up at the hut because they'd heard about this young woman who had not bowed down to the idols, who was on the run, and they were wondering where she was. And she was just in this phase of life where she was trying to strengthen herself from the Lord because she knew that someday she was going to get arrested, someday she was going to get tortured, and probably someday she was going to get killed. And so she was fasting regularly, not eating things for three days or ten days at a time. And she said in this time she memorized a hundred chapters of the Bible. Where does your strength come from, Christian? And then this guy named Elder Park finds her one night, who I think probably looked like one of those dudes from that picture over there. He's this old man, this Korean, who... um, was a real man of faith, and he came to her her hut and said, I'm looking for Esther. And she says, okay, I'm here. Why are you here? He said, well, God has told me I need to go and warn the Japanese that if they don't repent of persecuting the Christians in Korea, that God is going to destroy them with fire from heaven. And she doesn't want to go because she's already on the run. And he says to her, I love this slide, he says to her, I can see you don't have very much faith. (laughs) Like she's already not bowed down to the idols. She's already on the run. He says to her, I can see you already don't have that much faith. And so she said, it hurt my feelings, but he was right. And uh, so they eventually decide, yeah, it's God's will for them to go from Korea to Japan to warn the government that if they don't repent of persecuting the Christians, God's going to destroy them with fire from heaven. Which did happen, right? Two thermonuclear bombs exploding over their country. So they're traveling to... uh, I'm going to tie this all together, don't worry. They're traveling to Japan, and Esther's just stressed out. Because this guy's a wanted criminal, according to the Japanese. And in order to get to Japan, you may notice they have to take a train from where they are and travel over the Sea of Japan to get to Japan. And guess what you need in order to take a train and then get on a boat and travel over, over to some places? You need things like tickets and passports. You know the kind of person who can't buy tickets and pass, get passports? Wanted criminals. So she's stressed out. She's like, how's this supposed to happen? And, and Elder Park just keeps saying, God wants me to go, I'll go. The Lord is my refuge. And he says to her, you know what? The soldiers won't even be able to see me. So they go to the train to travel to, I guess, the coast, and they get on the train. I just love this story. Um, 
Esther's like, why don't you go sit in the corner somewhere, you know, where people won't see you? Because she's just, we're all going to die. She's in we're all going to die mode. And he's like, why? Oh, I get it, because you think that I'm going to get arrested and you don't want to be sitting beside me when this happens. He's like, okay, fine. And he goes and sits in the corner. And uh, so this time where the people checking tickets come through the train and they just walk right by him. And she's looking, she's trying not to watch while it's happening. And then when she looks up and he's still there and he's like, (laughs) and then the soldiers come by to look for passports and they just walk right by him, checked everybody else, walked right by him. And she's like, looks up again. And then he gets out of the chair and walks down the aisle and actually bumps one of the soldiers out of the way and sits down beside her and said, I told you they wouldn't be able to see me. The Lord's my refuge. He hides me. And she's just still like, what? And they finally, they get to the place and they're about to board onto the ship to go to Japan. This is how I remember. I've been reading this story. So if you read it and the details are a little bit different, go easy on me. But um, she goes and then she comes back and he's gone. This Elder Park guy is gone. She's like, it finally happened. He's finally arrested. And she goes looking for him and here's this Elder Park. He's standing with this soldier. And she's like, this is it. But then as she watches it, what's happening is this soldier is actually helping this guy get undressed and then redressed in a suit because he wants to wear his suit when he gets to Japan. So he found a suit somewhere, even though he's been living in the caves for the last who knows how long. And he does this, you know, the soldiers, the guy who's supposed to be arresting this wanted criminal (laughs) is helping him put on his clothes to get him dressed up so he can go to Japan. Crazy. Well, we can joke about it, make light of it, but you can imagine that it's, this was very stressful times. And when Esther gets to Japan, she goes and meets with some very prominent Japanese Christians because I didn't know this, but some of the people in the government who are J- Japanese were actually Christians because there'd been missionary work in Korea, missionary work in Japan. And so she would go and meet with them. And because of her excellent Japanese, because of her Japanese training, and I think also because of her dad's prominence, whatever his story was, Um, she gets these audiences with people who are like ex-prime ministers or ex-leaders of the military and tells them, uh, we're here to rebuke the government because of the persecutions that they didn't know about because governments tend to keep the persecutions they do under wraps. And said, we've got to do this. And there is this one moment where um, one of these retired Japanese officials says to her, You're so young and you're so smart. Don't do this. I'll send you to seminary. You can spend the rest of your life ministering to Christians, but you don't have to do this. And her response was, besides feeling very tempted, she says, I'm already dead. And I'm on a mission from the Lord and I need to do it. And so they do this. They write out this billboard that says, like, Japan, repent of what you're doing or else kind of thing. And they go to this really official Japanese government meeting and they interrupt it. And, like, these meetings were so stringent that you weren't even allowed to, like, turn your head while the meetings were on. No coughing allowed while these meetings were on. And what they do is they unfurl this thing and (laughs) preach a little bit. and, And she's off to jail, of course. And initially she's put in one of these nicer prisons because of her status, but she really feels convicted like she should be with the rest of the Christians who are, who are arrested for, for uh, 
non-compliance with the idolatry, and she ends up there. And this is why I'm bringing this story around. Okay, so, so let me tie the first loop together here. There's this one scene where she's ministering to one of these Christians who's being, they're all being starved, and they're all nearly freezing to death at night, and they're all regularly getting beaten up. And she just starts laughing. She just starts giggling. And she, she goes, oh, these, these government people, they just, they think they rule the world. And they're already destroyed because they're standing against the living God. They, they're, they're, they're rejecting Jesus. They're already destroyed and they think they rule the world. And she's just laughing. She's living like somebody who gets it. She is going to judge the world in Christ, not the other way around. She is going to even be judging angels at the final judgment, not the other way around. How do you have the faith to go towards imprisonment, to go towards your death. She's, I'm, I'm in Jesus. I'm here just to obey the Lord, and the Japanese government is not my judge, and the Canadian government is not my judge, and the Steinbeck government is not my judge, and when everything's set, said and done, I'm going to be the one sitting on the judgment seat with Jesus, the true judge, not the other way around. So eventually she's brought to her trial. And it's this actually really tragic scene. They're marching her with a group of, I think, 10 other people. And some of them are very old pastors who've been in jail for a long time. And they're being force marched and beaten every time one of them stumbles. And, and they get to this trial. And there's a group of family members outside of the courthouse. And they're singing. They're singing praises to God outside of the courthouse to try to encourage the saints who are on trial. And she's saying that the people who are in charge of the courthouse are like throwing water on them in the middle of winter to try to disperse them. And it's not really working. And it's Esther's turn to go up and be um, interviewed by the, the panel of judges. And the judge is complaining about the noise. So she says, just, just give me a second. I'll go quiet them down. <laughs> and the judge is like, okay. And so she runs out. And she tells, guys, you need to quiet down because I'm about to testify for Jesus and nobody can hear me. And they're like, okay. So just, just pray quietly, please. Okay. And then she comes back in. Of course, everyone's already stunned because she's just this tiny weakling. She says all through the book, like, I've been frail my entire life. She's just this tiny weakling. <laughs> Those guards have to keep, run to keep up with her. And the mob outside is like, okay, whatever you want. And she comes in and the, the judge is kind of like, who do you think you are to condemn this mighty nation? Who are you to say that your Jesus is greater than our emperor? He's our living God. And she's just like, well, this is the truth. You guys are standing against the living God and you're going to be destroyed. And I don't want you to be, but this is the truth. Like you're persecuting the church of Christ. You're going to lose. And the judge just kind of sat there, not knowing what to do. As she just preached at them. And then she's taken back to her cell and the guards who are taking her back to the cell are like, you couldn't tell who was the judge there or because the guys behind the chair were just sitting there listening to her pronounce judgment on them. 
this tiny little And so this is why I'm preaching. That's kind of what it looks like. That, that's what the Apostle Paul was like. He went to trial so many times. Read the book of Acts. He was constantly being hauled towards people who were not his judge. But he was gracious with and preached the gospel to because he wanted them to repent. And you can understand why Paul would think it's so crazy for Christians to go after each other in courts when nobody is their judge except for Jesus. And they're going to be the court's judge at the end of time. Which brings me to my section of wanting to talk about the second scripture I pointed out, which is the why not rather suffer wrong. Esther was in prison for a while. I haven't even finished the book yet. I'm still with her in prison. Um, I know she gets out because she wrote the book and then went to the States for a bit. So that much I know. It's kind of like the book of Revelations. We know how it's going to end. Jesus is coming back. Sin is gone. Death is gone. Satan is toast. That's how it's going to end. A lot of the details are going to be a surprise. But So Esther's in prison, and she wants to be in a prison cell with other people so she can minister to them. And there, again, they're being totally underfed. She says the worst part of the day was supper because you just got enough food to remind you how hungry you were. And she's in this room with a few people, and she's ministering to them. And everybody knows about Esther, who's the, the gracious one who believes in God. And it, God was just so with them. It came to the point where the jailers would say to them, we know that everybody who's nice to you does okay and everyone who doesn't like you ends up sick or dying. That's what the jailers are saying. We know that people who don't like you, they don't last long. But Esther's still in jail this whole time. Okay, so two quick stories. A story of the crazy Chinese woman. So there, in one of the other cells near Esther, there was this lady who just was mo- started moaning all day. She's just moaning all day. So the jailers talked to her and said, this is the crazy Chinese woman. She killed her husband and chopped his body into little bits and threw it in a river. And she's been arrested and now she's awaiting. She's, she's just being held until she's going to get killed. And she's, just, and, and she's crazy. She's, you know, if you go in there, she tries to bite you. She's in there with her hands tied behind her back 24 hours a day so she doesn't attack anybody. She's in a cell by herself and she's just moaning. And, and Esther's just like, I... She needs the Lord. So she asks for days that this woman would be brought into their cell with her and these other ladies. I'm sure her cellmates thought she was crazy. Um, And eventually somebody decides, okay. So they take this crazy lady who attacks people and they put her in the cell with Esther. And right away this lady goes after Esther. And Esther just grabs her and they wrestle around the room for a while until this lady passes out. Have you ever done that, like been in like a wrestle? I've done that before. I remember I was, I think, in grade 10, and my brother was in grade 12, and he did something, or I did something. You know how it is when you're teenage boys together. You, you don't need a reason. The reason's always there. You just need an excuse, right? And so we started fighting, and I put him in a headlock, and he would just throw me around the basement <laughs> for a long time. I'm glad nobody got really hurt, but it's tiring. And eventually, this, this woman just gets so exhausted, she passes out. 
and she sleeps for three days with Esther just holding her. For three days. Now, she's used to not eating, so she just fasted for three days, and other people got her food, because that's the way you could bless people in the prison cell. And she wakes up after three days, and they feed her, and she's still really angry, and she's swearing at people, but she only speaks Manchurian, and nobody understands it, so it doesn't cause much problem. And... Um, she wakes up and she eats and then she sleeps for another day. And then I, th- maybe there was one person who did or they brought in somebody new who actually did know that dialect. And so Esther started learning some phrases that in Manchurian. I love you. I like you. Hello. So that when this lady woke up, she could say something to her. And over time, what it turned out was... Oh, and I forgot to mention, this lady, uh, of course, because she was tied up and nobody touched her, she had been going to the bathroom on herself for a while. And so Esther's like holding this lady's feet to her chest at night so her feet don't freeze and just holding on to her. And she's like, it smelled so bad, I just thought I was going to die right there. But holding on to her because of Jesus, because she's been in prison with Jesus, because Jesus has been loving her in prison, because she already gave up on life without Jesus, so it doesn't really matter if she's in prison or not in prison, because Jesus is her life. Her, her life in this life was already dead. She already gave it up. So just being with Jesus was the point of living. Prison, not prison. It's just Jesus. And so eventually what happened with this woman is that one day she starts crying out, where's my boy? Where's my boy? And she tells her story, and her story was that um, she had a little bit of missionary contact when she was a little child, but her parents didn't like her going to church where these missionaries were because it kept her away from work, they said. Um, And eventually what happened was that she was sold at 10 years old to be a mistress for a man. Okay, so she was married at 10. Not the official wife, the unofficial wife. And so she was just so bitter about this that she hated her parents, hated her husband, and eventually she plotted and murdered her husband and was caught. And But when she was arrested, she was already pregnant. So she gave birth after being newly arrested. And for one reason and another, she couldn't feed the baby, so they took the baby away. So here's this woman in a Chinese woman in a Japanese prison who was sold into marriage at 10 murdered her husband and had her baby taken away days before she was sent to this prison. Can you maybe understand why she seemed crazy? And Esther's just sharing Jesus with her, saying, you know how you miss your baby boy? This is how the Creator feels about you. That he's, he's, He wants you home. He wants you back. Sharing the story of Jesus with her. And she's believing it. And one of the interesting things to me, just interesting one of these ways, is this Chinese woman, I don't know what her name was, her biggest burden through this whole time where she's in prison and she's going to die and getting to know the Lord, is she's saying things like, do you think my husband went to hell when I killed him? And Esther wisely says, you know what, everybody walks their own journey with their creator. And where people end up isn't about us. But this is her burden. She wants to die. She, she wants to die and because she's living with the idea of murdering her husband. And she gets saved and she ends off and she was executed. But like she's in heaven right now. 
she's in heaven because Esther was willing to be wrongly imprisoned for speaking the truth. She said, I, I would rather suffer than be right. So that lady's saved. One more story. So there's this geisha lady, which is like Japanese Hollywood actresses, essentially, with more makeup than even Hollywood actresses use. And she ends up in the prison because she's been kind of going from man to man for quite a while, and the latest man that she had hooked up with was in the opium trade, and they got busted for, for schlocking the opium. And... Um, so she's in prison, but she's in prison as like a diva, right? She's complaining, I can't find any cigarettes in this place. <laughs> How come I'm not in a better prison cell? And she's like, what you would imagine. And um, she ends up in the same room as Esther. And Esther is a singer, and so she's singing these Korean songs, and the geisha lady's a singer. And so she's interested in these songs, and they're learning language, and she's teaching her some hymns and stuff like that, and making friends. And she ends up telling this Japanese lady the parable of Lazarus and the rich ruler about how there was a rich ruler, a rich, a rich man who had all the comforts you could enjoy in life, the best food and a comfortable house. And outside of his gate sat this beggar named Lazarus who had so little that he was happy to even eat what a dog might eat. And when he was lying there, he got so weak that the dogs would come and lick his sores. And they both died by and by. And in the afterlife, Lazarus went to go and be with a, one of his ancient um, predecessors, a ruler. But the rich man ended up in a place of torment. And when he pleaded for some kind of comfort, he said to the rich man, or to the, to the predecessor in the afterlife, could you just send Lazarus over here with a little bit of water to cool my tongue? He said, this is impossible. You're in your place of torment and there is no distance that we can pass over this, this chasm. He said, well, if you can't comfort me, at least send Lazarus back to go and warn my brothers. I have seven brothers and I don't want them to end up like me. He said, they won't listen. He said, no, if someone comes back from the dead, they will listen. And the noble pr- person from the past said, if people won't listen to the word of God, even if someone comes back from the dead, they still won't listen. And she used this story to say, was it worth it, this life of comfort? Is it worth it, this life of celebrity? Is it worth it, this life of pleasure, if you'll be lost? And the Japanese lady gets it. It won't be worth it. And over time she begins to reveal, even though I was running around with famous men and even though I was with a, like a handsome husband, he was already married to somebody before I stole him. And so she said, I never actually felt one moment of peace or joy in my entire life. It was only jealousy and anger. She said, I thought about killing myself all the time. Even though I had this famous looking life, all my whole life was just, sadness and anger and so she came to Jesus and became a worshiper and even said to Esther I can see now why it was a wonderful thing that I was sent to prison
That lady's in heaven. Because Esther would rather have been wronged. She would rather have been defrauded. She would have rather been imprisoned. All right. Heaven on earth is where Christians are willing to go through anything because we know who Jesus is. And I was, I was just thinking while we were in the worshiping, it's like we, we live in a world full of suffering and we need to be willing to go through it, Christians. Because we're the only ones in the world who can be trusted with it. We need to find the way to embrace the hardships, to embrace being wrong, to embrace being defrauded. We are the only ones in the world who can be entrusted with it. Because we're the only ones with an all-powerful God who says, I will take every wrong thing that happens to you and use it for good. We're the only ones that no matter what bad things happen, we know that there is a Jesus in heaven who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. There is not a hole in the ground deep enough and dark enough that they can put you in it that I cannot dwell with you there for joy and peace and rescue. We're the only ones in the world who know that greater than every force and greater than every government and greater than every loss, there is a Father in heaven who says, I will hear your every prayer. So you guys, you know me. You know this isn't me. I'm a regular old Canadian. I, like you, think that uh, whatever life I think is my best life, I have a pretty, I have a strong right to it. And whoever I think is keeping me from it, I have rights against them too. But one of the things about Robert Balfour is he cannot live in a world knowing that Esther Kim was in it, not change the standards of evaluating how I live. I can't, I can't live in a world knowing that I had a sister who went to like the capital of oppression to warn them, knowing that she was probably going to die even though what she was really worried about was the torture. <laughs> Dying's the easy part. <laughs> it's the years of torture beforehand that's hard. And in the jails, had a lot of pity on the people doing wrong. And in the jails, holding on to for days people who are bathed in their own feces to show them mercy. How do you, how do you try to forget that? Because it's the same Jesus. Same Jesus, same Jesus, same Jesus, same Jesus, same Jesus, same Jesus, guys, same Jesus, same Jesus, 
So if it turns out that life gets a lot harder and we end up getting a lot more wronged, same Jesus. Same Jesus. He's, he's putting things together for glory. And at the end of time, we get to be the judges. So if you're upset, it's not that long. You don't like the devil? It's not that long before you get to help cast him into the lake of fire. In the meantime, let's suffer well for the glory of God. Amen? Can we praise? I'm going to pray for us. Father, here we are. Father, the lawsuits in Corinth were very tiny compared to what uh, the story I just told you. And God, my life is heaven on earth compared to a Japanese prison from 1935. And yet, Lord, you know, same problem. Am I going to be living for me? Or am I going to be living for your glory? Father, I pray you'd help us. I pray you'd help each one of us here, Lord, to see the truth that Jesus is more wonderful than any comfortable life. That there is more joy in the path of obedience than a hundred million lifetimes of riches and fame. That the power of the Holy Spirit is present and available to every single one of us to tread whichever path Jesus has called us to. God, would you do this? Father, I thank you for those missionaries that went to Korea years ago and taught Esther's mom about Jesus so she could teach Esther about Jesus and that she could be faithful in her day so that we could hear about it to grow and become more faithful in our day. Father, thank you. Father, where there are the idols of this age presented to us, where the world around us says you have to bow down to this, whether it's the idol of self or the idol of success or the idol of pleasure or the idol of praise for man, God, would you help each one of us to stiffen our spine today and say, I'm not going to bow down, whatever the cost. I love Jesus. I don't want to bow down to one of his enemies. And would you so fill us and empower us? Father, thank you for the grace of Christ. Thank you, Lord, that even if we think about ourselves, we're the most disgusting, crazy, poop-encrusted, hate-everyone person in the world. Jesus wants to embrace us. And hold us until we believe that we could be in love with him. Hold us until we can think clearly and forgive. Hold us until we know we can face our death and it's going to be the first day face to face with Jesus. I want to give an invitation to you. If you're just still learning about Jesus or maybe you've walked away from the church for a while, I, I want to invite you to come home. 
one thing I know is that nobody can promise you just comfort and pleasure for the rest of your life. The truth is, is that whatever you've gone through, there could be more. But Jesus comes to us with the promise of a love and a joy that goes deeper than anything a human being can give us or take away from us. He comes to us with the promise that because he died for our sins, we can be adopted as God's children. And we can get through the hard things in this life knowing God's always with us and then looking forward to the day of our death when we will go home to be with God forever. You might wonder, is this available to me? This is how I understand God's word. If you're breathing, it's available. If you want it, it's yours. If you want Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he's yours. So if there's anybody here who would like to put up their hand just to acknowledge to God, I would like that. I'm going to give you a second just to show the Lord that. If you would like Jesus as your Lord and Savior.